Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. In the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon commented, Everywhere there is apathy. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. A sermon is a sermon, whatever the subject. Only the shorter it is, the better. He went on to warn that the church was drifting away from the purity of the gospel. Instead of boldly proclaiming the truths of scripture, Christians were candy coating the word. Being careful not to offend anyone. And as a result, Christianity's influence in 19th century England was severely weakened. A hundred years later, this is true of the United States. Churches have moved from centering on the word and the gospel to centering on the program, on entertainment. Music is judged based on how it makes me feel, not based on what it actually says. All for fear of offending the world in the name of Christ. I've often stated that a preacher need not worry about splitting a church by preaching heresy. He needs to worry about splitting a church by changing the color of the drapes. See, the reason that our country is in the state it is in is not because sinners are acting like sinners, but because, shame, but because saints are ashamed of being saints. Our country is in the state it is in because our churches are in the state that they are in. And the reason the churches are in the state that they are in is because the believers are ashamed of the gospel. We fear the persecution of the raised eyebrow. Oh, you're one of those people, are you? We fear of being seen as odd. We're unwilling to share the gospel. We're unwilling to stand for truth. We're unwilling to call out the insane worldview of the world around us because we're afraid of feeling uncomfortable. In short, we're ashamed of the gospel. God has called us here at Cambria to be a lighthouse to the world of the gospel. God has called us to be willing to share the gospel and to stand on the truth of the word of God. Even... And especially when it's not popular. And this is of increasing importance to remember and to understand as the world continues to degrade. You may or may not be aware that June is Pride Month. It's the month in which the world celebrates the depravity of the LGBTQ plus 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 movement. But no longer is this simply a fringe celebration. In fact, just a few days ago, uh, the children's program Blues Clues. Maybe you're aware of it. Blues Clues. It featured an episode that sought to normalize polyamory. Say, what is that? That is the relationship between multiple men and multiple women in a single relationship. And polyamorous parenting and all varieties of sexual deviancy. In fact, this episode, the host of the show was an animated drag queen who celebrated ace, bi, and pan grown-ups. In other words, every group of all imaginable aspects of sexual deviancy. 
We have arrived at the point where even the innocent children's program Blue's Clues is no longer an innocent children's program. And as this engine gains steam, do not be mistaken. They're coming for you. They're coming for your children and they're coming for your grandchildren. And don't be confused. They will not allow the church to escape unscathed. The day has arrived in which you must decide, are you a cultural Christian or are you a true Christian? Because the day of cultural Christianity is coming to an end. It will soon cease to exist. It's time for us to decide, will we stand for the gospel or will we be ashamed of the gospel? This is not the first time in church history that the church has been faced with this choice. In fact, much of what we face is a mirror of first century Rome and what the early church faced. And in our text, as Paul sat in the prison cell awaiting martyrdom, he pled with Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. And in this plea, He gave Timothy some direction towards having the power to stand for truth. Let's read our text together this morning. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse eight, we'll work our way through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagalius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. At the outset of this text, Paul pleads with Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Word ashamed is the idea of to experience disgrace, to be embarrassed about the gospel. And from a human point of view, there's a lot about the gospel of which to be ashamed or embarrassed. It's the message of a seemingly failed prophet, rejected by his people, executed by the government, and proclaimed and founded by a collection of of fishermen and other lowlifes. The message of the gospel seems to be foolish. Some Galilean carpenter died so that your character defects 
would no longer keep you from a God, a relationship with a God, you claims the only God. That's why Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the world does not see the gospel as helpful Rather, they view the gospel as hateful and unloving. Who are we to tell others that their life choices are wicked and will result in eternal damnation? The gospel will not make us popular. Instead, it will increasingly lead to rejection and soon to real persecution. But not only is there a danger of being ashamed of the gospel, there's also a danger of being ashamed of those proclaiming the gospel. Notice that Paul also encourages Timothy not to be ashamed that Paul is the Lord's prisoner, not not Nero's prisoner, though it may seem that way. He's the Lord's prisoner. Paul was in prison for the sake of Christ. And as society degrades, it will be easy to be ashamed of those who are imprisoned for Christ. Excuse me. Over the last few months, just across the border in Ontario, several pastors have been arrested for holding church services in the wake of COVID. Rather than stand with these pastors, many Christians have condemned them, stating simply they needed to give in to the government. And it would be easy to be ashamed of those who suffer for Christ. Because if you stand with them, you invite attacks on yourself. And this is Paul's concern. And this is my concern. Too many Christians have let Christianity be something that they do on Sunday that has no impact on the rest of their life. It's something, not something they are all week. We're ashamed of the gospel. You say, Pastor, how can you say this of us? Because we're content to let Sunday morning be the extent of our walk with God. We see the Wednesday Bible study is unimportant. Well, I mean, if we have time, we'll be there. But, yeah, you know, it's just another day. We see it as boring. We view Sunday school as something that's just, it's just too early to get to. I mean, 930? Do you realize how early that is? Prayer time before that? Well, that's out of the question. My dear people, listen. God wants something more from you. God wants more from you. You claim to be a Christian, but you view the gathering of God's people as something that you can just take or leave. I fear that we're ashamed of the gospel. 
So like Paul, I call on you, do not be ashamed of the gospel, of the testimony about our Lord or of his people. So we have to ask the question, how can we live in a way that is not ashamed of the gospel? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, in this text, Paul gives us three marks of people who stand for truth and are not ashamed. Three marks that we must be willing and eager to take on ourselves if we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. And it's going to take us several weeks to work through these three marks. So over the next few weeks, we'll examine these. The first of these three marks is that we need to be willing to share in suffering. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me of, of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This verse serves as really the thesis, the theme statement of this section in, in Second Timothy, extending really from verse three of chapter one all the way through verse 13 of chapter two. And it calls for us to stand for the gospel of Christ. So where this phrase share in suffering is an interesting phrase. It, it, it means to suffer evil together or to take one share. And, and in English, it's three words. But in the Greek New Testament, it's actually only one word. And it only appears here and in chapter two, verse three. And it appears to be a word that Paul actually invented by taking three words and smashing them together into one. The Greek word for suffer and evil and with. And so literally it means to suffer evil with someone. But suffering is not something that we think about. At Wednesday night, our missionary to Germany and Romania made an in insightful statement. He said this. The greatest danger to the church is not Islam or political. The greatest danger to the church is affluency. Finances has lulled the church into a comfortable place. The reality is that we have served and experienced an unprecedented time in church history in which we've not suffered as Christians. Rather, we've enjoyed unprecedented comforts. But that time is coming to an end. The norm of history is going to be crashing down around us. Soon we will be called to suffer for Christ's sake. But this is not unusual. This is the norm. And it's declared throughout scripture. We think of what Christ said in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Paul will make the statement in chapter three of second Timothy, verse 12. Indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The gospel runs counter to the worldview of those around us. They claim that man is basically good. Society loves to say things like there are no bad people. Society made them that way. Or, or there are no bad children. They just have not been given the chance. While the gospel proclaims there are no good people. We are all totally depraved and lost in our sins. Society claims that you can work to better yourself or be who you are. Be true to yourself. 
While the gospel states that there is no salvation in any other name under heaven except through Christ. Society claims that truth is up to you. You determine whatever truth works for you to get through life. But the gospel proclaims that God is truth. And so the world hates the gospel and all who proclaim it. This suffering for Christ is not going to be easy. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not preferable. Rather not have it. So how can we prepare for it? How can we face it? How can we thrive in the midst of suffering when it comes? Well, Paul gives us three reminders. We'll see how many we get through today. The first way that we can share in suffering is to remember the gospel. When you remember the gospel, you'll not be ashamed of it. Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul begins by reminding us that the gospel is not weakness. Rather, it is the power of God. Regardless of opposition, regardless of suffering and shame, the way to power is not through compromise. It's not through psychology. It's not through science. The way to power is through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. This is why Paul said in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God. And so over the next few verses, Paul rehearses the gospel for us again. And he reminds us that it is God who saves us. We can't save ourselves. We are incapable of approaching God because of our sin. Isaiah 64, 6 declares that even the moral things we do are like used bandages in the sight of God to a righteous and holy God. They're stained by our sin. Yet God in his righteous love and mercy saved us. We also see that he called us and granted us grace before the ages began. You see, the gospel is not an afterthought or even a corrective by God. Sometimes we think that maybe God created things and it was perfect and we messed it up. So God had to come up with a way to correct it. But that's not accurate. You see, when man rebelled against God, God was not surprised by that. In fact, he knew in his omniscience that God would rebel against him, and yet he still created him. Before creation, God planned salvation through the death of the second member of the Trinity. And before he said, let there be light, he looked through the annals of time and chose you. 
He called you before time began. And not because of some good found in you. He says, not because of our works. Nothing you did, nothing you're doing, nothing you could ever do merits this loving favor of God. It's not that God looked through the annals of time and saw that you would choose him and so he chose you. No, we're told by Christ in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Paul tells us in Romans 9 that God did this in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Why would God do this? Why would God choose you before time began? He tells us who saved us. And called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. What was this purpose? Well, we see throughout scripture that this purpose is the glory of God's grace. Elsewhere in Ephesians 1, Paul says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And here's the reason to the praise of his glorious grace so that God's grace would be praised. We see this picture in Revelation 4, the throne room of God. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It's all for God's glory. Say, so how can this make any sense? How can God do this? I can't understand this. Paul says in Romans 9, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. And as we consider this amazing reality that God chose us in him before the foundation of time, not because of anything he saw in us, but solely because of his grace, we cannot help but cry out like Paul did in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that it might be repaid? For of him 
And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And further, not only did he call us before time began to salvation. He abolished death. He says in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, this grace that was made known in Christ has two effects. Two effects on believers and the sinful world. And the first one is that Christ abolished death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He goes on to, in Hebrews 2 to say, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now we understand that death is a reality of every human being. One day, every one of us is going to die. We're not absolved from death, but rather this word abolished means to render inactive. He rendered death inactive because of Christ's death, burial and resurrection. We don't have to fear death. Because of salvation in Christ, death is no longer feared. It's lost its sting. First Corinthians 15 tells us when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that is saying death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your sting? Death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You see, rather than something to be feared, death is now something to be welcomed. Because death is no longer death. Rather, now it's the gateway to life everlasting. You know, prior to salvation, we really had nothing to live for. We had no purpose but we were terrified of death. But after salvation, we have everything to live for. Yet we welcome death. Because through the power of the cross, Christ ripped apart the shackles of death. He removed its sting and he rendered it powerless over the believer. It's no longer the end. Rather, it is the beginning. That's the second effect this grace made known to Christ has on the believers in sinful world. You see, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. Because Jesus lives, you can live too. 
Ephesians 2 tells us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in, one, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, we don't fear death because we have life and immortality. We don't fear suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because the gospel informs us that the worst thing that they can do to us is let us live. That's the opportunity to proclaim Christ. If they kill us, we live with Christ. Paul said it himself in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can endure suffering for the gospel by remembering the gospel. It's all about life, true life, eternal life. They can only hurt our mortal body. They cannot separate us from our salvation because we didn't do anything to earn it. God declared it before he ever said, let there be lights. Eternity awaits and it will be glorious. The world is dying. The world is temporary. So the opinion of the world really doesn't matter. It's going away. You see, this salvation is more than mere forgiveness. It's more than getting out of hell free. This salvation is also a call to holiness. He says in verse 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. One man said, in other words, God's call is highly ethical. God does not just call believers. He calls them towards himself, towards holiness. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You see, when we truly understand the gospel, when we place our confidence in God, we have the power to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We have the power to please God in every aspect of our life. He says, bearing fruit and every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Colossians 1, 10 and 11. See, salvation requires that we live it out. It requires that we be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. What he's saying is that cultural Christianity is no Christianity at all. It's fake Christianity because the true child of God strives for holiness. So James says in James two, 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Yeah, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? God has called us to work out our salvation, to live it out. Not to be Sunday Christians, but to have it envelop every single aspect of our life. You want to see the health of a church? Don't go to the Sunday morning service. Go to the Wednesday night Bible study or the prayer time. That'll show you what they actually think. You see, when we remember the gospel, when we strive for holiness, we encounter the power of God. And we gain the ability to suffer for the cause of Christ. Other people, don't fear suffering for the gospel. Don't fear suffering for God. Don't fear the coming persecution. Don't be the ones at election time always saying, don't you know if that one gets in the office, we'll suffer persecution? Don't you know that regardless of who gets in the office, we're going to suffer persecution? Don't fear it. Remember the gospel. When we see the gospel for what it is, God calling out undeserving people for the sake of his glory, And calling them to holiness. How can we be ashamed of that? What an incredible message. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't give in to the world so that they'll not see you as weird. Boldly stand on the word. And share the truth that Jesus died for them. We're going to stop there today. We'll pick up. In the coming weeks, to continue on with what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. I think stopping there is helpful as we prepare for communion to remember the incredible sacrifice of God. It was no afterthought. He looked through the annals of time before he ever created a thing and chose you to himself for the praise of his glorious grace. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin Lost in darkness and shame. But rather you sent your son. And sacrificed him on our behalf. And raised him through your power. To conquer death and the devil. So that through him we too might have eternal life. Lord help us not to be ashamed of that. Help us not to fear this world. But to hold fast to the truth. That if you did not spare your son, but gave him freely for us all, how will you not freely with him give us all things? Help us to stand for truth in a lost and dying world. To recognize that it is the gospel that will change things. Thank you for that incredible gift and privilege. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.